When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club for July. I am Katie Waldman, Slate's sports correspondent, and I am joined here in the DC studio today by Hannah Rosen. Hi, Katie. Hello. And Jamel Bowie. Hello, Katie. And I should say that Jamel is a staff writer for Slate, and Hannah is... Hannah... What are you? You're everything. You are I'm a writer everything. for I write for Slate the Atlantic. Write, we'll yeah. just leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. And they are also right now, most importantly, audiobook club gurus and bright lights. So I can't wait to hear what you guys made of this book. It is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. It was shortlisted for the National Book Award. It's gotten wonderful reviews and has also stirred up a little bit of confusion in terms of genre, like what category it actually falls into. Is it science fiction? Is it literary fiction? But before we get into any of those issues, maybe we should just orient people by saying what happens in this book. What happens in this book? Okay, there's a plague. That's the essential (laughs) thing you need to know about this book. And the plague works as quickly as any plague you'll ever read about. You get it, you are dead in three days, and basically it spreads. It's a virus that spreads as quickly as any virus will ever spread, so the end of the world comes instantaneously. And I would say that Emily St. John Mandel, which we'll talk about, does not dwell on that. You just kind of (laughs) assumed it just happened. It happened, and everybody is dead. So it's very little in the way of sort of details about the complete collapse of civilization. You learn bits and pieces there, but what's important for you to know is that there is a horrible plague. It kills, let's say, 99% of all humanity, Mm -hmm. and there are the survivors. But the book, I feel like a good chunk of the book doesn't deal with the plague years at all, or even the post-plague years. A good Mm -hmm. chunk of the book takes place well, it's not got, that yeah. far out, right? It's like right. 15, 20 years out of the plague. So one of the interesting things is who remembers what? Mm-hmm. Who remembers the iPhone? Who is too young so never remembered an iPhone when the plague hit? So there are like sort of memories of – it's almost like her, like a Spike Jones. It's like sort of like our world but not really like our right. world. It's mm-hmm. like there are echoes and memories of it but it's not really like that. So basically we just, – just to continue a little bit of the plot, we – follow this traveling troupe of artists who perform Shakespeare plays. Uh, I'm just forgetting their names. It's the Traveling Symphony. Thank and you, they the do symphony. orchestral performances and they also do Shakespeare because, one, as one character says, people want to remember the best of what was or the best of the old world. Right. So, and as the character also says, survival is insufficient. Yes, There's a lot of like highbrow, lowbrow playing in this book in many, many different ways. So the plot centers around this famous person from the old world who's an actor and dies on stage. He's the kind of connector between a lot of different people in the book. But mostly we're following this traveling troupe as they make their way through the small territory that's their territory. And then they come upon this scary town run by a scary prophet. That's the bare bones. So that's, yes, that's like the near future post-pandemic reality. And then in the past, there is also snapshots of Arthur Leander, who is the A-list celebrity, the actor who dies on stage, his life, how he becomes an actor, his um, tempestuous divorces and marriages, 
His first wife, actually, Miranda, is a really fascinating character. I hope we can talk about her at some point. She is a graphic novelist or a comic book artist, and she creates Station Eleven that gives the book its name. And it is sort of um, – I was reading one review that called the comic a distorted mirror for the world that they wake up into after the flu because it's basically a space station where most of humanity has been wiped out and – Dr. Eleven is marooned there, and there's this sort of undersea of people who want to return to Earth, even though that's impossible, they can't return to Earth. So you are getting a sense probably of the many different plot lines that are interweaving for Station Eleven. Although I want to say I did not find this book chaotic. Like I Mm -hmm. found it actually quite easy to follow the characters. They were very distinct. There's a lot of jumping and forth between the recent Earth as we know it now Mm -hmm. and the post-apocalyptic Earth. And it is completely clear to me, at least me, where we are in this book at any given moment. I did not find it confusing. What did you guys think? I agree. I mean, there actually aren't that many characters. You know, Mm -hmm. there aren't that many people whose viewpoints we see. And because it's just St. John Mandel. I think Mandel, maybe? Let's just call her Mandy. No, just kidding. (laughs) Mandel, something shorter. Mandel does a very good job of sort of when she is moving to a different viewpoint character kind of situating you. You immediately know from the first sort of paragraph of that chapter, this is where I am in the timeline. When she does that, even though I appreciate it as a reader because I always know where she is, that's where it feels most genre fiction. Yes. Because like I wrote down the sentence construction, in a few months, blah, blah, blah would happen. But first, right. like yes. she, that sentence construction happens many, many times. And it's really useful because you know exactly where you are, but it right. does feel a little yeah. And as someone who actually doesn't read a whole lot of science fiction, I've read some, but not a lot, it was really kind of refreshing and crazy to come across those sentences. Like when you finish reading a beautifully written, you know, familiarly beautifully written and fascinating chapter, and then it has a cliffhanger sentence that's like, that was when you could still press buttons to talk to anyone at the other end of the world. (laughs) A a good example is from uh, chapter 13 uh, in part three. The opening two sentences are, Ten minutes before the photograph, Arthur Lander and the girl are waiting by the coat check in a restaurant in Toronto. This is well before the Georgia flu. Right. Civilization yeah. <laughs> won't collapse for another 14 years. Right. But how, like, it's, I'm totally grateful for that. Yes. Like, in all the light we cannot see, I was constantly confused. The last book we discussed right. about, like, where are we in time? Are we in the last days or the first days? And, like, you know, writers don't want to put sentences, just like we as journalists don't want to put sentences like that in our pieces because they're so creaky. And yet they were helpful. Well, can we talk a little bit about like what role genre conventions are playing in this book? Because I do feel like to the extent that these techniques are deployed, they're done winkingly a bit. And she's sort of playing around with what exactly she wants the book to be. And in fact, in an interview, I think she said, I'm really surprised that people keep characterizing this as science fiction because I see it firmly as literary fiction, which to me sort of raise the question, well, what's the difference? And I was just wondering if you guys expected this book to be more sci-fi or more dystopian or... I think, Katie, you recommended – when you asked me if I wanted to do this one, you said this is sort of like a post-apocalyptic book. And so I've, I've read quite a few of those and yeah. I have like a certain idea of how they're supposed to – or what the conventions of the genre are. And Station Eleven to me doesn't – I mean, there are elements of the genre definitely there. But the things that you kind of associate with post-apocalyptic book kind of be intense world building. And not mm-hmm. necessarily sort of heavy-handed world building, but you have a book, a very literary book, uh, like A Canticle for Leibowitz, which uh, – spends quite a bit of time 
in introducing you to characters and taking you from setting to setting and from sort of it's also another book that plays with time uh, quite a bit uh, from time to time establishing sort of what is happening in the world, why are people talking this way, kind of giving you a sense of what the world looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, here there's really not that much of that. The post-plague world in Station Eleven, we don't get that much description. We kind of get just hints of, you know, and, and frankly, hints that are, eh, they're kind of things you would anticipate. Mm-hmm. There are marauders and there are feral people and there are kind of, it's dangerous. You get enough to kind of emphasize that the characters are not safe, mm-hmm. but there's no, I hesitate to call it world building. That is the central insight about this book. I think she does it intentionally, and maybe mm. we can debate about that, because I think she, in the book, she's very intentional about what are the two genres that survive, Shakespeare and a comic book. Yes, and she yeah. writes a lot about other kinds of writing, like craft writing, which I think is a lower order of writing, like the kind of writing we all do, like news writing. <laughs> like she she definitely, like there are different characters in the book whose writing becomes irrelevant in the new world. And I think it's because something about that kind of writing is inessential. And it's everything from business manuals <laughs> to, you know, a book that's like a memoir of a philanthropist. These are things that various writers kind of do in the old world, but can't carry over into the new world. So I think she does play around with genre. You know, it'd be a much more conventional book if she said, here's a traveling Shakespeare troupe. Shakespeare is important. And in the new world, you know, that's what we define as art. There's something so universal and elemental about Shakespeare, you know, that that's what we respect. But instead, it's like Shakespeare plus... A comic book. A comic book. creator didn't even want necessarily other people to read it. Like for her, it was the act of creating it that was important. But that's so critical because I was thinking of Miranda is the girlfriend of the actor. We're kind of jumping around a little bit. But since we're talking about conventions and genre, I think it's okay. Miranda is the girlfriend of the actor, but she's a regular girl. Like she's a girl from Toronto who he was introduced to. She's not an actress. She's not famous. She's a total misfit in Hollywood and they end up divorced. But the one thing she does have is this private comic book that they all patronize her. Like all the Hollywood people are like, oh, you're working on your cute little thing, right? Versus her first boyfriend's art. Mm -hmm. Do you guys remember this guy? Pablo. Pablo is not necessarily an important character, but he is important if we're going to think about conventions and art and what lasts because he's an artist who's a little too kind of tied to the commercialism of his art. His Mm -hmm. art is something that he needs to make a living off of and we don't like him. Right. Whereas we do like Miranda, like whose art is completely private and she, you know, she does commercial. She's a business person and she makes her art and those things are separate. I just wondered if there was some idea we were supposed to be. Yeah, I think, (laughs) you know, I think that's a really astute point because this book is very concerned with art versus celebrity, maybe. Like, right. we've got the art and the beauty and the sort of transcendent moments in Shakespeare and in the Beethoven concerts that they play. And then you have all the trappings of fame and Arthur being chased by paparazzi and Miranda being snapped in unflattering shots and just sort of like the soullessness of the whole Hollywood machine. And I think, like, part of what the pandemic does for Mandel is to present this cleansing opportunity, this sort of starting over where we can recalibrate and figure out like what in our sort of art engine, like our art industry that's become sort of like a pop culture consumer big construction, like what should we preserve and what is sort of irrelevant and bad. And corrupted, right? What has become corrupted. Yeah. Right. That's in a sense what I found depressing about the novels. You could take the message that it's too late. Like we have just corrupted artistic endeavor and enterprise. On the other hand, it is 
a genre novel at some <laughs> level. So, so maybe that's taking the message a little too far. Can we talk about Arthur, kind of his function in the novel? There's not really a central character, but he's kind of the central character. Mm-hmm. We'll just, for purposes of this conversation, call him I mean, that. I'd, I'd say Arthur and then Chris, or is it Kirsten? I just want to say Kirsten. Katniss. Kirsten? Can we call her Katniss? Katniss, Katniss yeah. Katniss. <laughs> Katniss with knives. Yes. Um, knives instead of bows. I guess the two of them are central characters and then eventually the prophet. Okay, so then forget whether he's central or not. Let's just start with Arthur. Arthur is a lost soul. He's a celebrity. He's surprisingly successful, right? Like at first he goes to acting classes. His acting teacher tells him he's not very good. And then somehow he becomes a really successful actor. And I think he is really useful in this book because he connects everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Like his fame allows you to connect like three different women, a child, a child actress. It's like because he's famous, he knows lots of people and basically everyone else in the, almost everyone else in the book is connected to Arthur. Well, the, the opening, mm-hmm. I mean, the opening sequence is the, the play, the King Lear and and pretty much most of our characters are introduced in that single sort of interaction. Mm-hmm. Chris Katniss, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Katniss with knives. I think we do meet uh, Miranda because she's mm-hmm. also in Toronto for the play. We meet Arthur. We meet a former paparazzi turned journalist, turned uh, aspiring, aspiring paramedic, Jeevan. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think those are the the four, and then from them we meet sort of. Arthur's best friend, his second wife, his son, like it kind of spins out from there. Right. But through Arthur, we do meet our initial cast of characters. Yeah, and Katniss is one of the actors in this odd production of King right. Lear, she which is, apparently uh, is based on a real production of King Lear, in which there are ghost children for King Lear's real children who just appear on stage and don't say anything. So that's interesting. Yeah. And um, I do think, just to your point on the sort of unlikely connections between the various people, this is a book also about sort of like the networks of society that you can't stop from forming and like right. what is a global community, what is a local community. And like she's really invested in the sort of local connections between individuals. And I think she relies so much on coincidence in some way. Like it's very unlikely and implausible that all of these people happen to be in the right place in the right time. Right. I think that's especially true with the airport in Michigan. Where yeah. I love that airport so much. <laughs> I just love that whole airport chapter. I think I'm going to read that several more times. Wait, but let's not leave Arthur yet. Okay. Right. So yes. what do we think about it? Arthur is – do we like Arthur? Do we not? Like what was your reactions to Arthur? I find it very hard to dislike fictional characters, much right. less – and that's the same – for mm-hmm. actual people and just disliking it's difficult. <laughs> it takes a lot of energy to dislike something. Uh-huh. So I actually really just sympathize with not sympathize, but I felt bad for Arthur. He's an unhappy man. Uh-huh. Um, just the detail that he's had three wives tells you right there that there's something sort of like wrong with him in his uh-huh. soul right. and that he doesn't know how to fill and that he maybe he thought fame would have filled that. Though I don't think I'm not sure that's the case. And it's because fame came so unexpectedly to him and he kind of just rode with it. But he's nostalgic. Like he's not unlovable. Right, at all. no. He's he he, he he know he wants to do Shakespeare. He reaches right. for true sentiment and nostalgia. It's unclear whether the world has stolen the possibility away from him or whether it, in his soul he never had it. Like if he had right. been a auto mechanic in Toronto, like he might have been equally unhappy and unanswerable question whether it's in him or outside him. But despite his obvious flaws and, and problems and the, and <laughs> the fact that he's like clearly a skirt chaser, I didn't dislike him. I thought he was the right combination of um, sort of likable and sympathetic but also deeply flawed and in some respects like not good for kind of a 
connecting character because so many people can draw different things from him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he's Lear, right? Like, he's the patriarch. He's the figure of this decaying culture that, for better or for worse, is passing out of out of sight in the book. And I think he shares a lot of that culture's good and bad points. Like, he, he his heart's in the right place. He is vain. He uses people. He writes a series of letters to his friend V., and doesn't seem to care that she's not responding and that she may not want to hear from him or find these letters intrusive. So I think like he's a character and an individually sympathetic character, but he's also sort of an emblem of the way things used to be. And so it's interesting that the people who he's influenced are the ones tasked with rebuilding the world. Mm-hmm. And like Lear, he can't stay on top of it. Like he yeah. can't. He's constantly trying to manipulate the world and its conventions and his own personality flaws, and he loses that. He loses that battle. He destroys himself. He's the first person to die. He's not Typhoid Mary because he doesn't bring on the plague, right. but like he is for the purposes of narrative structure. Typhoid Mary. He's the first one to drop dead, and that's mm. when the plague begins. If Arthur is one of our load stars, another one is Kristen or Katniss with knives. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you guys found her as compelling or interesting as Arthur or just what you made of Kristen. Well, first, I'm going to talk about her wanderings through men like Arthur's wanderings through women. I actually thought there are a lot of parallels where you have sort of old world parallel, new world parallel. And Kristen, too, has these kind of incomplete relationship with men in which things have not sort of been you know, rounded off in a completely savory way. I actually mm-hmm. thought those things were handled quite well, both in Arthur's case and in Kristen's case. Like he was not merely a skirt chaser. Like his his jumps from wife to wife were presented as kind of just the way things had to be. And right. there was sort of love in them. It was just, there was a little bit of destiny. And I would say the same thing about Kristen's. There was something very natural about both of their inability to connect. Yeah. I mean, she does seem like a damaged Mm-hmm. young woman, we should say that she can't remember her first year on the road before she's snapped up by the traveling symphony, which becomes her new family and her new home. Purposely, aggressively can't remember. Like, right. doesn't yeah. want to remember. It's like, a, it feels like a mental trick. What we know as the readers is that she had an older brother. Her older brother kind of protected her for that first year and he um, he stepped on a nail and died of an infection. And that he told her repeatedly, you do not want to remember. So in that moment when he dies and he has this completely preventable infection because he stepped on a nail, you kind of see like just how bleak the society they've landed in is. And one criticism the book has drawn is that it's not dark enough. Like it doesn't actually show us the pain and suffering that would probably ensue if a flu wiped out all civilization and people were just thrown back onto their animal natures. Did you guys think that it was too hopeful and kind of rose-colored? I mean, I agree that the book doesn't dwell on sort of the really horrible nasty consequences of a plague that would that killed 99% of people. I mean, there are moments in the book when they stumble upon disintegrating corpses. But I mean, in that in that kind of world, the landscape would just be rife with disintegrating corpses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's because Mandela was trying to provide like a rosy colored vision of this apocalypse. I think it just wasn't her concern. Like Mm -hmm. to go back to our earlier point, I don't think her concern is world building. And so to contrast, again, to contrast it with the Canticle for Leibowitz, which is in a lot of ways a book that I'd like to talk to her about her inspirations for this book because it, it feels like there are ties to this book that was written in 1960. That's a book where it's, um, it's time shifts are marked 
by there's a recurring uh, uh, motif of crows looking for food, looking for flesh to eat from people who have died. And so sort of after each time period in that novel, there is some sort of like cataclysm or or sort of terrible violence. And then uh, Miller, the author, emphasizes this and emphasizes sort of the bleakness of the world through these crows or the sharks or the, the scavengers and hunters who feed off of this. And there's nothing like, there's nothing like that in, in Station Eleven because, again, I just don't think she was that concerned with it. I think the plague and the apocalypse are just – I mean, they're not quite MacGuffins, but I'll just call it a MacGuffin yeah. to explore these other questions. Yeah, well, that's a sense in which it is science fiction. It's just – it's like a theoretical apocalyptic novel. I was comparing it in my head to The Road because The Road yeah. is yeah. similarly intimate – similarly spare you know it's just as concerned with kind of what happens to human connections and relationships in a post-apocalyptic world but it is also like there is no beauty and no transcendence and nothing left in right. this shell of a yeah it is like universe. a billion times yeah. more bleak yeah than this novel is so while it is an explicitly world building i happen to at this moment be rereading ursula le guin the lathe of heaven which is like nothing but world building mm-hmm. like while it's not world building it's very different this tone i see those criticisms because it feels light. Like while there are very, very memorable moments like corpses on the road or the airplane that's stuck on the tarmac where everyone in it has been quarantined and died, like there are definitely memorable visuals about about a horrible apocalypse. The overall tone of this is like a literary novel. I mean, it's not like like a bleak apocalyptic novel. I would say it's like elegy but not horror. In that it's like very nostalgic. There's thoughts of sort of beautiful memories that wave down to characters and even just the cutting back and forth between present and past. It's really about like the continuities and the disruptions between like life before and life after. And the way those memories work, I I thought that was one of the most interesting things. I'm not a huge consumer of (laughs) post-apocalyptic fiction, so I don't know how unusual this is. But the way people talked about, like the way they remembered the old world was like, yeah, there were these like slats on the wall and air used to come and it would cool you down. Like the things that they were nostalgic for were so interesting and specific. And or seeing an airplane take off, like they were very mundane. There was a little bit of this wide-eyed, like everything was such a miracle, which uh-huh. I totally right. get why that was there. But it also just like, I think I wanted a little bit more darkness mm-hmm. at points. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like civilization was so wonderful, but at least now we can see the stars. Like it was all a very, very hopeful book. My favorite parts of the book tended to be when it did get dark. And mm-hmm. so the, the entire mm-hmm. sort of plot around the prophet I really enjoyed because, yeah. you know, if we're thinking, I guess, realistically about an apocalypse, like, yeah, those kinds of people would would pop up very quickly and they would be terrifying. And I kind of liked, I, I liked that element of danger and of darkness that he kind of brought to it. Although I think the reveal of who he was was very obvious. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah. totally. I'm, I'm yeah. not like a figure or outer of plot twists. And this one I was like, uh-huh. Like as soon as, like... I think as, as soon as like, uh, as soon as Kristen was like, I don't know why his dog's name was Lily. I was like, oh, well, he's obviously right. <laughs> Arthur's son. Arthur's son. So the meditation on Arthur, who's powerful by virtue of his celebrity, but trapped by his celebrity, and the prophet, like you said, Jamel, it's like, 
where does power come from and who really has power in our world? Like celebrities have power and then who has power in this post-apocalyptic world? Prophets have power. Like when there's no means of communication or spreading of information or whatever, you can really create hermetic. In fact, that's a question I've thought of in our modern world. Sorry mm. for this digression. Is like, <laughs> can you not have like Branch Davidians or anything like that because everybody has cell phones now? Like how would you keep people cordoned off from information? It would be extremely difficult to mm. do now in a way that it used to be a lot easier. Well, I mean, I think there are still cults. There are still people kind of trapped in, um, you know, bizarre uh, ideologies and, and theologies. And I think it's in part because those things speak to something deeper than just the need for information. And mm-hmm. they think latch onto someone's soul in a deeper way, then that can be dispelled by just knowing more information, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Mandel kind of plays with that a little bit in that the prophet's source the source of his power is in some sense not just the bleakness and the and the desperation of the world in which he exists, but sort of his sheer force of will and charisma. Mm-hmm. Right. Almost sort of he's like, a new celebrity. Right, he's a new celebrity. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way, the traveling symphony derives its power in terms of the fact that, you know, it comes into a town and crowds of people are mesmerized mm-hmm. by yeah. the same kind of I guess you would call it the same a variation of the same kind of charisma and celebrity. And that these things they persist after the plague because they do speak to something deeper than, you know, being dazzled by star power or, or what have you. And even in the case of Arthur, his friend Clark, maybe this is after the plague, but he says something to the effect of, you know, when he was younger, he was he was brilliant. He was um he was there's an asset of you just I can't recall. Who says it. about who? Arthur is British best friend. Oh Clark. Oh yeah. Oh I can't remember. Yeah, he's it was magnetic. like he was. Yeah, he's, he's magnificent. Yeah, he was yeah magnificent. He was magnificent. like beautiful and magnificent, mm-hmm. but not. He, you would be drawn to him, right. right? Yeah. I wonder if one of the differences between the prophets and the artists is that the artists sort of own that what they're providing is escape from the harsh mm-hmm. reality of the world, whereas the prophets are saying like we are illumining the true reality. We are the light. We are the pure. And so maybe it's just like a question of who is being honest about what their imaginative flight is there for or doing. Well, that was one of my favorite exchanges was at the end of the book between Kristen and the prophet when the book kind of comes to its head. They're both quoting the same thing but understanding those that, that, that same language in completely different ways. So he's taking it literally almost like a literal interpretation of the Bible slash comic book. Yeah. Um, they're quoting the qu- the comic book, Station Eleven. Yeah, they're quoting the comic book, but there's a debate in there about literal interpretation of apocalypse and biblical ideas versus, you know, kind of metaphorical interpretation of these things, which is what Kristen does. Just to describe the prophet. So the, the prophet lives in a place called St. Deborah by the Water and the traveling troop comes through there and they suddenly recognize the danger. There's like ways in this new world that you come to see things as dangerous. And apparently before these 15, 20 years, any stranger would be dangerous. But now that's eased The world off. is softening, yeah. she no, says. Yeah, the world is softening, and, but you can still sense danger when it happens. So they come upon this prophet. Do we think of the portrait of the prophet? Maybe we can stay there for a minute. He starts as a little boy playing video games in the airport in which certain people are stuck but it turns out it's good that they're stuck because it essentially serves as a quarantine zone. So none of them get sick. There's about 
I think it starts out with 100 and some and builds to about 300 people. And then there's an airplane that lands on the tarmac. This is the creepiest, most memorable visual in the book. And the doors of this airplane never open. Presumably everybody's sick on the airplane and they all die. And so he is a little kid once his batteries run out. And he's there with his mother, who's Arthur's second wife, who's also a beautiful actress. He starts praying to the plane. What are we supposed to understand about Elizabeth and the boy? That he's crazy? That he's, you know, some combination of like mentally disturbed and affected by the outside circumstance? That his mother already started out with this philosophy that everything yeah. happens for a reason? That's just how she was raised? Because it's spare. It's not, we don't get that much about any individual character and particularly not about the prophet. From what little we get about Elizabeth and Tyler? Tyler is his name. Yeah. What I read into that basically was that these are two people who have never experienced hardship in their lives mm-hmm. and have no mental schema for kind mm-hmm. of fitting that into their, their experience of the world. And so when something – hardship like the collapse of civilization comes <laughs> – Minor. <laughs> Tyler in particular – well, Elizabeth seems to just kind of break down. Like there's mm-hmm. no way for her to integrate it into her herself. And Tyler being young, being the same age as Kristen is when the collapse comes – integrates it by way of of what he learned from his mother, that everything happens for a reason. So this must have happened for a reason. Um, and that reason is is that like, you know, I'm And we must have been saved for yeah, a reason. Yeah, we must have been we must have been saved for a reason. Right. We are pure and better. Right. And I think also it's interesting to sort of contrast his view of everything unfolding according to God's plan with the sort of delightful randomness of what survives and what doesn't. So we've, as you said, Hannah, we've got Shakespeare, hooray, is still around. And also this random comic book that right. no one ever, like, imagine of all the things to survive this Station Eleven sci-fi comic Which he treats like gospel. Yeah. Even though it's utterly random, you know, it's presented as an utterly random set of coincidences that this particular thing should have twice landed in the hands of two people who happen to be in the 0.01% of people who survived. It's so random. Right. And I think she sort of delights in that randomness and sort of, isn't it improbable and interesting that this detail is still here? Or like, Mm -hmm. this is the thing that you remember. Is there anything in there we're supposed to read about the comic book and the actual Bible? His prophecies come from the Bible and the comic book. Right. Are like, they both equally random? Is is there, there, She doesn't particularly give more weight to his biblical prophecies than she does to his comic book prophecies. I sort of see all of those things as a piece with the Shakespeare, right? Like these are things that speak to people on some deeper levels. Spoke mm-hmm. to him on some deeper levels, certainly. But Shakespeare, art, religion speak to people on this very deep level. And so while it's sort of funny that this comic book survived – um, as well as the Bible did, it's not surprising that it mm-hmm. did. And that Tyler would somehow, you know, merge the two into what I'll charitably call a coherent view of the world, right? That like right. both things touch a similar kind of place in the human soul. Mm-hmm. Katie, can we talk about the idea you mentioned about communities, small communities? You know, the traveling troop is one community, the people at the airport are another community, and then we will lead to the question that I cannot answer to myself, which is like, why does Miranda die alone on the beach? I yeah. don't understand that. I didn't get what that was doing everything there or what we're supposed to. Reason, yeah, everything huh? happens for a reason. <laughs> but that is clearly something that she's interested in. Like you said, global, local. Like there's something beautiful about the troop. They treat each other like family. They have codas. They look out for each other. They have mottos. I mean, they're, you know, they're like yeah. an old established family. So that's very nice. Everyone's always looking for a place to land. 
band. Like Jeevan finds himself yeah. a little community. Like it's clearly like a deep human drive to find yourself a family. Yeah. And I would add to all of those points that one refrain that we keep coming back to is hell is other people, the Sartre quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it sort of gets modified and it says, actually, hell is the absence of people you long for at mm-hmm. one point. And so the question becomes like, well, what what are other people? Are they good or bad? There are all these scenes where I guess Jivan, for instance, is alone in a beautiful frost lit park and just feeling the silence and the cold and feeling his own sense of purpose as he discovers that he wants to be a paramedic. And the loneliness is wonderful and beautiful. And then there are, there are sort of counterpart scenes where the sky is like a swirl with stars. They're not just pinpricks. They're like actual swirls of light because all the electricity is down. And this sense of being alone is just like a wonderful, wonderful thing. But then obviously the cost of that is tremendous and terrifying and horrible. And these moments of connection are probably like the most emotionally affecting in the book. So I do think she is wondering, you know, what is the value and what is the cost of like being around other people all the time Mm -hmm. of these like networks and societies and artificial constructs that we've created and called civilization. So why does Miranda die alone on the beach? (laughs) What are we supposed to make of that? I mean, she's a traveling, you know, she's a businesswoman. After her divorce, she becomes a businesswoman. She happens to be on a trip. Where is she? In Bali? Someplace like that. I think she's in Malaysia. Malaysia. Okay. You know, we don't hear that many deaths stretched out, like day one when you got the virus, day two when you got the virus, but we do hear hers. It's peaceful compared to, say, like what I would imagine a family's death would look like because she's on her own and doesn't have anyone to scream to or cry to or shriek to. She's kind of on her own on a beach. And she's like watching the sunrise, right? Yeah, it's oddly, you know, given that this is that this is the one prolonged she's supposed to stand in for how people died. It is peaceful. Yeah. And it's almost like the world is awakening as she's dying. So there's like this like almost passing of the torch, like her life is leaving and the day is breaking and, you know, everything happens for a reason, which is clearly not a sentiment that the book itself wants to get behind. But there was sort of like a cosmic neatness to it that I wasn't sure what to make of. Right, right. Like with Jeevan and his brother, it was sort of there was a mention that he was going to die, but you don't really, there's no prolonged horror Mm -hmm. of the last minutes of life. And Jamel, I wonder what you think of the death because to me, I sort of thought, oh, my gosh, everyone made it. Everyone survived. So she needs to make someone die. And, like, we very much care about Miranda. So I thought, well, maybe she just, like, <laughs> Miranda drew the short straw. Did it seem random to you? Or do you think, like, her death played a larger narrative purpose? I don't know what larger narrative purpose that would have been. I mean, yeah. the thing I'm not sure Mandel is trying to get across, but that seems like it's there, right, is that – uh, Miranda is a woman who, since her divorce, has kind of kept herself and, and never regretted that choice. And then mm-hmm. she dies alone on a beach. And maybe it's a very poetic and beautiful death, but it's still dying alone. But I'm not sure. It wasn't written in such a way as a hammer on the fact that she's alone, at least not to me. So I don't. Well, she was like the je ne regrette rien, you know, like I did it my way. Like right. that's yeah. the character that she is. Her, her no motto is, that. I repent nothing. I repent nothing, right. And so I guess maybe we could say that's a luxury that the dead have once they're wiped off the world by a terrible swine flu or bird flu or something, is that they are not burdened with all the regrets that the surviving society has to walk through. And like, what a terrible and painful burden that the 
people that we are meeting now suffer. Or to protect anybody else or to mourn your children who died, you know, a day before you do or anything like that. And maybe it's a cleaner death. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there's something in that. Then what about the community of the airport? What did you guys think of that? I just loved the way that, you know, there's like a teenage girl wandering around looking for antidepressants yeah. <laughs> and there's, you know, how how it was it was a kind of microcosm of how a society would get formed, how people would, you know, at first be desperate and then be elated when they all broke into the Mexican yeah. <laughs> restaurant and made each other food and then 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 a reality dawns and so they sort of split apart and make separate houses and then over time the kind of little bricks and mortar of a civilization get built like a museum and a you know territory here except it was all like in the first class lounge or the you know it, yeah. was, it was just kind of funny and and sweet i'm not sure i've ever read something that was so sharp about the way provisional things become sort of like abiding or eternal things yes um like you see things sort of thrown up responding to an immediate need like you know certain oh now we all congregate around the fire that we created to roast a deer because now we all hunt deer and then suddenly that's a tradition and that's Mm -hmm. part of the culture and i was kind of interested by the sort of spontaneous process by which randomness becomes like entrenched as like part of a society and I thought that that was like really lovely happening in the airport and I I liked the way that she was exploring that and also how necessity and proximity can cause barriers to collapse by Mm -hmm. a certain point they're they're there so long that they start learning each other's languages you Mm -hmm. have people from Singapore people from France and you know it's like well we got to talk to each other Mm -hmm. Um, and so that happens on the note of kind of temporary things being permanent I think that was what was so great about this museum of, of civilization mm-hmm. that is sort of rumored when you're when you we don't really know in, in prior in the narrative we're not really sure if this airport even exists in the the traveling symphony comes into the town now controlled by the prophet someone says oh well your friends they went to the museum of civilization you know north or whatever um, and then you you learn how it came about and it really was uh, this character kind of saying I guess I should put this here so people knew it was a thing and then other people started doing the same with their things mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you have this you have a museum and that becomes the record of civilization right. one of my favorite exhibits ever was in our now dearly departed Corcoran which is like the Severn Airport was uh, <laughs> was the um, it was called the Aliens Guide to the Ruins of Washington and it was an imagining of aliens landing in uh, Washington that's been hit by an apocalypse and kind of what their interpretation of the place would be so like they decided that it was a society based on pillars and there was sort of the one pillar and the two pillar and the three pillar like they created this completely false alien narrative on the ruins that they found here and it was you know it just it, it's just a meditation on the arbitrariness of founding uh, narratives, like right. our founding, you know, everything that we think to be true about America and how it was founded is essentially arbitrary. Like this civilization of the airport is in fact founded on an act of violence, like all civilizations, which is an airplane that's been forcibly shut just outside its yeah. boundaries. Those people were not allowed in and in fact they're all dead, which is, you know, common to how civilizations are founded. So there were like bits and pieces of nation building in there. But but this is, I think, why I, I really loved reading this book is because she's subtle, but she definitely is on the side of chaos and arbitrariness mm-hmm. over like everything happens for a reason, you know. So, okay, I guess there's the ending left to talk about how this all resolves itself. There's, it gets kind of a genre at the end, right? There's like a genuine showdown. Yes. Uh, (laughs) A a showdown that I thought was, I was very unsatisfied by the resolution because I I wasn't sure I saw, it didn't seem to fit 
right? To me, it so. Can you describe it? It's cinematic. It's very cinematic. Yeah. So after the traveling symphony leaves the prophet's town, and they're headed to this, uh, no one really knows if it exists, but they're going to go to it anyway. Airport members of them start getting picked off one by one, and Kristen and um, August. August, right? They go searching for food or water or what have you. And when they return to where their camp is supposed to be, it is gone. Um, and so they're like, what has happened? And they they begin trying to make their own way. There's a protocol if you get if you get lost, they'll make your way to the destination. So they begin making their way to the destination. And they happen upon, they find, they discover one of their missing comrades. Yeah, and it turns out that the prophet and his men, a group of men, have been trailing them. Um, because uh, a little girl in the prophet's town who was pledged to be his wife had stowed away with the traveling symphony, so he wanted her back. And so they're stalking the symphony. And in this encounter, Kristen and August show why we're calling them, why we're calling Kristen at least Katniss with knives. They kill two of the men with one of their friends. And then essentially, uh, do they, I don't think they, they, they don't look for the others. They kind of no. The others, the symphony has actually sent out a scouting crew, and so they stumble upon this scene of carnage, where I think actually the prophet ends up getting gunned down by one of his own followers, this young boy, by like a twelve-year-old boy, yeah, who then kills himself. Yes, it's a twelve-year-old boy doing that, which I guess is is foreshadowed a bit when they run into this boy leaving the town, and he's sort of like uncommitted to all of this. He's sort of mm-hmm. like, well, this is just what I have to do. So who is, what is that 12-year-old boy? He's ambivalent. Like, what? who is that 12? What's the deal with that? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It did feel like we had been sort of dropped into a different book. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because it, there was so much action and... Yeah. And I mean, I was really riveted. Like, there was that one moment where Katniss, Kristen, is hiding in the bushes and the archer who has this like strange metallic crossbow that like doesn't resemble anything that we had before looks at her and says I see you and it was totally spine tingling and chilling and great but it did feel like an absolutely different book. Maybe it's something essential about this book though because there wasn't really any totally central character so like whose life were you going to follow who was going to survive it would be a hard book to wrap up. For one thing, it seemed very coincidental, like all of these characters end up in the same clearing at the same time, and the ones who are dangerous all happen to die, and the ones who we are rooting for all happen to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, the whole book is not realism by any stretch of the imagination, but this just seemed like Like she had a happy thing or something. Yeah. It was an element of genre that didn't fit the book that we had read. Except in mood. Like, yeah. accept that the book is, you know that the book is coming down on the side of hopefulness. Like, you know mm-hmm. that. Like, the very last scene is lights in the distance. Right. The electrical so, grid. The is electrical right. back grid. Like, I kept wondering throughout the book, like, why can't people reinvent the things that they <laughs> used to have if they have some memory of them? And so, at the end of the book, it's like, well, we're going to start a civilization anew, and presumably it's going to be better. Like, the book is fundamentally hopeful. You know, it's in tone the opposite of the road. It is mm-hmm. not bleak, so... I've mentioned the book twice now. I would actually really recommend reading A Canticle for Leibowitz, which mm. kind of the, the plot of the book basically is that at some point in the near future, and it was written in the late 50s, so this would be the 60s, there's a nuclear war. Everyone's killed. Everything's wiped out. And we start 600 years later with this 
Catholic uh, monastery that has devoted itself to trying to collect the artifacts of the past civilization. And mm. they don't understand what they are, right? Mm. They have no idea what these things are, but their mission is to preserve the remnants of civilization as best as they can. Um, and so it's sort of, and so you, you meet them and then you meet them 600 years after that point and 600 years after that point. And so what would the civilization look like at each of these points? What does the preservation of knowledge look like at, the, at mm-hmm. each of these points? What does reinvention look like at each of these points? Um, and it kind of, in a much more genre way, deals with some of the things that Mandel touches on. Mm-hmm. I really love this book. I only read it for the first time last year and then like read it again immediately mm-hmm. after. It's a really mm-hmm. fantastic book. And I think that if those are sort of questions that Mandel touches on or sort of gestures to, like they're very much mm-hmm. the point of that book. It's funny because I don't have that much patience for world building. Like I, I have patience for two such books a year maybe. <laughs> so I feel like Station Eleven was like written for me. It was like it, it was written for like my level of tolerance of post-apocalyptic genre fiction. It like met me exactly where I want to be met for that kind of reading. Yeah. And speaking of post-apocalyptic genre fiction. Can we maybe just like really quickly touch on why this seems to be so popular right now? And why? I wasn't aware that it was very popular until until I was told. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I mean, my sense as a little bit of an outsider to the fandom is with, you know, Divergent and Hunger Games. And um, there just seems to be a thirst for these narratives of like the broken world and what will rise from the ashes. And like, is this our intuition that civilization is going to heck like are we is there some kind of deep-seated anxiety you know like it rises during kind of nuclear apocalyptic 80s and now we're not in that place but we're in the environmental collapse sixth Mm -hmm. extinction you know 2015 so maybe it does have something to do with that like every 30 40 years that feeling comes back around and needs to be resolved although this book did not have any like subtle climate environmental message the way so many of these books have. I feel like actually our current obsession, if it is an obsession, might have to do with just the sense of boredom and restlessness and ennui Mm -hmm. a little bit. Like we want something dramatic to sort of overwhelm us. We're like surrounded by all the noise and the buzz and the information and it's sort of numbing and we want like some pure, huge reset. Yeah, I mean, maybe it has to do with technology, like our sense of that something's lost, but it's happening so fast that we don't have time to kind of take stock of what we've lost. And so mm-hmm. there, so this so this need for things that are elemental, like mm-hmm. Hunger Games, ele- like elemental, visceral human, um, human needs, whether it's about connection or community building, that somehow like we can erase technology and see what would be there without it. Like we yeah. know that it's too late and we can't stop this train, but like we just we just need a minute to, to just see what we're losing. Yeah. So I guess to close, I want to ask whether you guys would recommend this book. I would. I already have. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I totally would. Yep. I loved it. Two thumbs up here. So thanks, guys. This was really fun. Sure. Oh, my pleasure. A program note. Our next selection for the Slate Audiobook Club is Go Set a Watchman by Harper Lee. Read it and join us for our discussion in August. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Slate Audio Book Club at slate.com slash ABC. 
visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash SlateABC. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. And please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer is Andy Bowers. The Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. For Hannah Rosen and Jamal Bowie, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.